Father, the Bible says, let all the earth keep silent before you. Lord, in the midst of everything and the, the activity here at this church and just the, uh, the energy of the Sabbath, Lord, help us to remember that this is a time for us to be still. For we know that you are a holy God. And even angels cover their eyes in reverence to you. Lord, help us not to simply pretend submission, but in our hearts right now, God, possess humility. Dear Jesus, we pray and ask that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us. God, if necessary, you would rebuke us, because the Bible says those who you love, you rebuke, but you rebuke that they may live. So God, we pray in your mercy, in your goodness, that you would correct us, that you would help us to be on the right path. And Lord, we just want to pray and ask that Satan and his angels would not be welcomed here at all. God, if there's any strongholds he has in our hearts right now, we just give you permission to send him off. And Lord, we pray and ask now for the Holy Spirit to minister to us, to speak to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church family, I, I believe this is going to be one of those messages in which we are going to walk away very challenged. We're going to walk away questioning our own spirituality. Hopefully we'll walk away knowing that God has revealed some things to us. Because if he does, then we know he is close to us. Amen? The Bible says in Psalms 139, talking about all the things and all the places where God is at. He's with us in heaven. He's with us in hell. He's with us to the trials and darkness. At the very end, describing all the external places where God is with us, David still has to ask God to be in his heart. Search me and try me, he says. See if there be any wicked way in me. Folks, sometimes God has to speak very strongly to his people. Amen? And many times when God speaks strongly, we can be very disappointed at that because we know that what he is saying means I'm going to have to change. And change can be very difficult. Oftentimes we rather not change. We tell people, keep the change. And we mean that in more ways than just uh, speaking about money. We love being, uh, love having our intellect stimulated. We love being comfortable. We love uh, staying in the same spot. This is something that's part of having a nature just like uh, the Bible says we do a selfish nature. And so when we want God to speak to us, many times he will reveal things to us that are hindering us, that may be an issue in our lives that we ourselves may not recognize. But it's very important that God reveals that because when he is revealing it, it's that he knows something that we don't know. And that is, if that is not taken care of, it could lead to our destruction. And I know we, we love going to series church here. Great sermons, praise the Lord for that. Great music. But folks, sometimes we have to hear things very strongly. Amen? We have to hear things very strongly. And I hope to God that after this sermon, instead of thinking to yourself, well, I don't want to ever go back to this church, or thinking to yourself, well, I don't like Pastor Nell, I want you to go out thinking, is this the Lord speaking to me right now? Amen? Amen. I've been studying something very late uh, recently. I've been studying the Holocaust. It's been my uh, personal study. Uh, I've enjoyed also watching several documentaries about the Holocaust and things that took place uh, towards the very end of World War II. I also have been studying about the Final Solution and about these uh, concentration camps. Been learning about the horrible things, the the tragic things that took place during World War II. I've been learning about the things that the Jews went through uh, during that time that Hitler's regime was sweeping across Europe, how they were persecuted, how they were chased, how they were marked, 
how they were treated like animals and many times killed right there, right in front of their own family. The most degrading things took place to the Jews during that time. Unfortunately, after they decided to remove the theocracy that God would be their king, the devil made up for all those years in the Old Testament that he couldn't get to Israel. And soon the Jews became the victim of Satan's wrath. And it has been that way for the last 2,000 years. Unfortunately, Jews are sometimes considered the most hated people in all the world. Prejudice exists. Now, it's very interesting. We're going to be talking about a very unusual verse in Scripture. And you're wondering to yourself, why are we kind of slow? Because this is very important. I want this to sink in. Everyone, take your Bible. We're going to Matthew chapter 24. It's a passage that we turn to many times. Matthew chapter 24. And God here is describing some very interesting things. Matthew chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, just look in the pew in front of you or ask your friend if you could borrow it and, uh, or you can sit down next to them and just share. Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 3. And if you're there, go ahead and say amen. Yes. Amen. Verse 3. Now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him, what? Privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And then the end of the age. They asked three questions. What's, this, what's the end look like? When are you coming? And what's the final sign? What's that all going to be all? What's that going to be about? And so as they begin to ask Jesus these questions, Jesus begins to give them the veritable grocery list, starting with the very first thing. Look at the very next verse. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one, what? Deceives you. Very first thing Jesus says about the end times, there's going to be worldwide deception. We've heard this a million times. Let's keep going. For many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of what? Wars. Just read the front page. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now watch what he says next. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows or birth pangs in the King James. So when Jesus begins to talk about end time events, you, be, you hear how he begins to list off all the destruction and the disasters and the death that is going to be taking place at the end of time. We learn about the earthquakes, we learn about war, we learn about all the horrible things. And in your mind, as you're hearing Jesus speak about this, you're thinking about this apocalyptic wasteland that has been just destroyed by these cataclysmic events. That's what you're thinking when you're thinking end time events. You're thinking destruction, chaos, just all sorts of anarchy taking place, people running for their lives, and just all of a sudden you see these hurricanes coming in and these tsunamis. You see all these horrible things, war, nuclear bombs taking off, boom, boom, boom. I mean, that's when you're hearing this, you're thinking to yourself, the very end of time, everything is going to go just crazy. But watch what Jesus says in verse 36. I want you to see the paradox. But at that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the what? Coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were, what? Eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so will all be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one the other left. Two women will be grinding at the meal, one will be taken, the other left. Now notice this, this is something I want you to see the paradox, don't miss this point. Jesus here is talking about death and destruction, all the horrible things taking place at the end of time. But then, at the very end of Matthew chapter 24, he describes how people at the very end of time will go on as if nothing is going wrong. Now notice this, Jesus could have said, hey, I'm going to talk about the time of Noah where there was, you know, this sin, this wickedness, all these horrible things that are happening. But instead, when he's talking about the time of Noah, he's talking about the focus of the people at that time. Now, people who are eating, who are drinking, who are marrying and given in marriage, it doesn't really seem, seem like something wrong is going on. You usually imagine in your mind a couple people just sitting at a, a tea table, just sipping away, right? I mean, that's what you imagine. 
But here's the paradox. While the world is, is just falling apart, you have a group of people who are just sitting around drinking tea. And that's the most unusual thing about the end times. They're going on as if life is just will go on for all of eternity. And this is the paradox of the end times. Because when it happens, all of a sudden it's just going to be right there in their face. Now why am I bringing this up? Because I want you to see one group of people. I want you to see one group of people. You have one group of people where the whole world is falling apart, and here they are, they're caring about all their priorities. Nothing wrong with those priorities. Is there anything wrong with eating? Anything wrong with drinking? Anything wrong with marrying? Anything wrong with marrying? <laughs> A lot of amens, that one, right? There's nothing wrong with those things. Well, what's wrong with the people of Noah? Notice that God is not mentioned in any of their priorities. He's not mentioned even in the top three list. So you see what's happening at the very end of time. You see a whole world that's falling apart, and you see a group of people that are sitting around mowing their lawn as hurricanes are destroying their neighbors' houses. This is what's happening. And folks, we are heading very fast towards those times. We have become very desensitized to the world all around us. As I said before, this represents one group of people. But there's going to be another group of people the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And the Bible teaches that this group of people, during while all these end-time events are happening, that they will be persecuted. They'll be what? Persecuted. In fact, take your Bible, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul makes a very strong, absolute statement. An absolute conditional statement. In other words, if A, then B. He says this is the way it is. If A, then B. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you're there, go ahead and say amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 10. Watch what the Bible says right here. That's page 1144. This is Paul speaking to young Timothy in his very last letter. His very last letter before he was beheaded. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, love, long-suffering, love, sorry, I repeated that one more time, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, and Iconium at Lystra, which persecutions I adore, uh, endured. Out of them the Lord delivered me. Now watch verse 12, because this is the absolute statement. Yes, and all who desire to live, what? Godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, what? Persecution. But take a good look at that next verse, because we tied it into Matthew 24. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being, what? Remember what Jesus said would take place at the end of time? There will be this worldwide deception and people will be just sitting around the tea table caring about their own business, right? Here Paul makes a very similar point and he says, look, here's something you need to understand. Anybody who desires to live godly, he makes a very emphatical statement. He says, will be persecuted. There's no condition, there's no variables in this. He makes it very clear. If you are living godly, you will be persecuted. But then he says, but evildoers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And sure enough, at the end of time, the world's going to polarize more and more, and you're going to see the wicked become more and more deceived because they refuse to change, and they don't even know that they're stepping in darkness. And you will see the righteous, those who are living more and more godly, they will suffer more and more persecution. More persecution. But Paul makes a very interesting statement. He said, yes, and all those who desire to live godly will what? Suffer what? Persecution. Now, I'm going to ask a question right now. And you can probably guess what question I'm about to ask now. How many people here have been chased by a mob because they wanted to give a Bible study to somebody? Raise your hand. A mob. I think a lot of us have been chased by dogs before. Okay, how many people here, because they have a Bible in their home, have been chased out by the police? 
well, something's wrong here. Because I know there's godly people here. Okay, how many people have been threatened with the recant notice that if they don't accept this recant, that they're going to burn on a stake? Anybody have that happen to them? Something strange. Because I know Paul's not lying right here. Paul doesn't lie, right? Paul said this, though. He said anyone who desires to live godly, anyone who will live godly, will. He makes it very clear. Suffer persecution. Will suffer persecution? He makes a very emphatical statement about this issue. He says, look, if you are living godly, you will suffer persecution. But folks, probably the reason why there is no persecution is because you know what I'm about to say. Many of us are not living godly lives. Many of us are not living godly lives. In fact, the people outside the church sometimes live much better lives than the people inside the church. But Paul makes it very clear. He says, anyone who desires to live godly will suffer persecution. The word persecution actually means to be chased. It means to be chased, to driven, be driven away. Now, watch what Ellen White says here. If you haven't been to our great controversy Bible study that takes place at Tuesdays at 7 o'clock, I just invite you, we're on chapter 3. But at the end of chapter 2, Ellen White says something so remarkable in the book Great Controversy. She's talking about this very same verse in 2 Timothy. Watch what she says. It's very powerful. The Apostle Paul declared that all who that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why is it then that persecution seems in a great degree to slumber? The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles. It is only because the spirit of compromise with sin, because the great truths of the word of God are so indifferently regarded, because there is so little vital godliness in the church that Christianity is apparently so popular with the world. Let there be a revival of the faith and power of the early church. And watch what she says next. And the spirit of persecution will be revived. And the fires of persecution will be rekindled. Did you guys hear what she just said? She says one of the reasons why there is no persecution that's happening today is because the church in a great degree has compromised, has become more and more worldly. It's become so popular with the world. Now, I'm not somebody who says, well, I want to be persecuted. I, no one here is thinking to themselves, well, you know, maybe we've we got to find a way to be persecuted. And that's not Ellen, what Ellen White is saying, but Ellen White knows something, that persecution is the precursor to the second coming. And she knows when that will happen, the second coming happens. And God will put an end to sin and suffering. He will take us to heaven. Can you say amen to that? But she knows that. And that's why she is saying this. She's saying the reason why persecution slumbers is because the church in a great degree has compromised. And folks, I'm not here to talk about what the general conference or the union or the CCC is doing. I'm here to talk about what we are doing individually. Amen? I know we really like to get into the debate. We love watching that stuff. I, look, I'm a fan of that stuff too, but here's the thing to understand. Compromise starts here first before it starts out there. Amen? And this is where the change needs to take place. And this is where the world has, has creeped in, and not into so much the church on a big scale, but into our own personal lives. We've compromised. We've made all these professions to God. Lord, I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. But step by step, we begin to compromise with the world. And before we know it, we're no different than where we were when we first started. And we're scratching our head. We're thinking to ourselves, what in the world happened here? Makes it very clear. Do you know something remarkable took place during, 18, during the 1880s? I was reading about it today. Sunday laws actually started happening in, the, in America during that time. The early Adventist church had been talking about persecution and things that would take place for about 30, 40 years. But when they began to see it, right before the very eyes, when Sunday laws started happening, when all the missionaries were poised in all those countries and ready to take the gospel out, the most unusual things began to take place. I shouldn't call it unusual, something that was expected. All of a sudden, 
Adventists begin to be persecuted. They begin to be persecuted in America. Did you know there are over 21 documented cases of Adventists being thrown in prison? In fact, several ministers being thrown in prison because of their stance on the Sabbath. They were thrown in prisons and were actually with chain gangs. Ministers. Can you imagine that pastor now with chain gangs? With a, a murderer on one hand and a, a burglar on the other hand. Right? Just like Jesus, though. Huh? Right? But this stuff was taking place during their time. This was happening during their time. Why? Because the church at that time was going forth with giving the gospel. They dedicated their lives to the Lord. They threw their heart, their mind, their soul into giving the message out. Anything that's connected to the church has one purpose, and that's to see Jesus come back soon. All other purposes are linked to that great purpose. Can you say amen to that? But folks, we need to understand something. If that hasn't happened yet, there's a big problem. We need to do some reevaluation. The standards have fallen low in the church. The standards have fallen real low in the church. Here we are, we're about to go and start another church plant. We're going to do a church plant in Houston. We want to see the gospel commission take place. We want to see the gospel go forward. But here we are, we're compromising with the truths that God has given us. You know what's very interesting? Ellen White makes a very powerful comment. She says this, one of the reasons why God does not flood the church with people is because the church is not ready. In other words, the problem's not the harvest, and the problem is not that God can't bring people into the church. But for many, it's actually safer to be outside the church than it is to be inside the church. So God has to hold back. He has to wait till his church is finally ready, till the church has risen to a greater standard. And that standard is more than just a principle or an idea. That standard is Jesus. And when that standard is reached more and more, then God says, I can trust this bride. I'm going to start bringing people in by flocks and groves. I can just bring them on in. The problem is not God. The problem is not just the Holy Spirit. The problem is God's people. We're not ready for God to bring more people in. And we may not be ready for Houston. I'm going to say that very frankly. Until we begin to understand and reevaluate some things in our lives, we need to come to a higher standard, the standard that God wants us to come up to, and that is the standard of Christian living. Can you say amen to that? Oh my goodness, it's almost a sin to ask Christians to act like Christians these days. Folks, we need to come to that higher standard that God wants us to come to. I think about the Sabbath, for example. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go in there and start just knocking out people left and right. But, folks, here's the thing. I feel personally convicted about something. And that is that if I bring people here, new people, if I, if I give Bible studies and they come into the church and they have to struggle with Sabbath issues, they have to avoid work issues, and some of them get fired, if some of them are going to, to you know, uh, public high schools and they're telling them, hey, you need to play football on Sabbath, and they say, no, I'm going to keep the Sabbath, and they come here, and they come to this church, and they find the same thing in the church. They find the same thing in the church. They're giving up their jobs. They're giving up their dreams to follow the truth, and they find the same thing here. And that just breaks my heart. To the point where sometimes I think to myself, then maybe we shouldn't do evangelism here. Because if they're safer out there, then let them stay out there until the church is ready. God calls us to a higher standard. He calls us to a higher standard where we are exalting God and we are exalting the Christ of the Sabbath. Can you say amen to that? And when people begin to see this, all of a sudden they said, that's where the truth is. You know, Edward Reed talked about something very interesting during camp meeting. He gave a very powerful story. He said that he started to, uh, he went to a seminar to speak, and somebody who was a friend of his said, hey, there's this Baptist minister who's been learning about the truth, about the Sabbath, and all the beautiful things. Here, go talk to him. He's interested in Bible prophecy. So Ed Reed gives him a book, and this man becomes convicted. The man goes to an Adventist church. And he doesn't find the same enthusiasm. He doesn't find the same standards that the people are talking about. And he goes back to Ed and he says, um, you know, I did go to an Adventist church, but this doesn't sound like the mighty remnant of God. But you know, Ed Reed said something very interesting. 
He said, actually, if you go to Matthew chapter 25, one of the signs of the end times is a sleeping church. But guess what? This church doesn't have to be sleeping. Amen? This church doesn't have to be sleeping. Absolutely not. This church does not have to be sleeping. And God wants us to exalt the standards like never before and to ask ourselves, Lord, have I begun to compromise in this area? Have I begun to compromise in that area? Have I let go of my standards in this area? Folks, here's the thing. If we're winning people and they're running away from worldly uh, influences, if they're trying to, trying to keep the Sabbath because of worldly jobs or worldly schools, then folks, we need to encourage them and help be a greater example for them. Can you say amen to that? Can you say amen? amen? God wants us to exalt the standard and say, okay, look, here is what God desires. Here's what God desires of you. Hey, why don't you come with me? I'm going to show you. I never forgot. Folks, when it came to the Sabbath, I, I mean, I, I wrestled with some things when I first started. When I first started, I wrestled with things. I used to do all sorts of things when it came to the Sabbath. I used to eat. I used to go. I mean, not, well, everybody eats on the Sabbath. <laughs> but I used to go out to eat. I used to go to the movies on the Sabbath. I used to do everything under the sun on the Sabbath except for work. Because I knew I couldn't work. I didn't have to work. So I was good. But you know what? God began to lead me step by step by step by step. And he says, Anel, this is what I desire. More and more of you. But folks, if we've been in the truth for several years, we don't need to go through the same journey. We don't need to go through the same journey. We can say, okay, I know what God's plans are. I know what he desires. I know the principles. I don't want to take the holy and make it common. In fact, do you want to know one of the first mentions of holy in the Bible? It's found in Exodus chapter 3 when God is speaking before Moses. And do you remember the very first thing God told Moses? Take off your what? Why? You're on holy ground. In other words, Moses began to understand the, the difference between holiness and unholiness, common, uncommon, sacred and unsacred. And it was that things that you normally do, things that are common, you walk on the ground all the time with your shoes. When it came to holy ground, you were to lay aside the common, the common and the unholy, and you were to exalt God and make him the priority. To make him the priority above all things. Can you say amen to that? And God wants us to exalt this standard. Ladies and gentlemen, you guys are leaders. Every person here is a leader. And you have influence over somebody. And you are showing people the truth about the Sabbath or beliefs about the Sabbath by the way you carry out your example on the Sabbath. Can you say amen to that? And God wants us to lift that standard higher and to ask ourselves, Lord, is there anything I could do to draw people to you more on Sabbath? Folks, I never forgot one time. I did, I did some outreach on Sabbath. I went to a senior care home. And I really believe God wanted me to do outreach that day. I was so tired after Pollock. I was like, I ate so much tater casserole. I went to this outreach. Got there. Practically falling asleep in the car. I wasn't driving, praise the Lord. We get there, and we started singing. We visited this one room, and there's this ex-marine. Shouldn't call him an ex-marine. There are no ex-marines. Amen? A little pride here. That's all right. <laughs> so he was there. He was alone. And we, we went in there. We talked with him. We prayed with him. We sang to him. At the very end of it, he was crying, and he says, You know, I don't have anybody left in this world. He says, but you guys have blessed me. I'm so lonely here. I walked away and I realized God wanted me to do that that day, to be a blessing. One day I was with my friend. And he says, hey, let's go out. Let's go enjoy Sabbath. We're going to go out into nature. Went out into nature. And here we are. Very serene, beautiful environment. There was no power lines, no planes flying overhead, a beautiful lake, trees completely surrounding it. Some of the trees forming a beautiful canopy and sort of this, this natural ramp. And me and my friend, the sun was going down on the Sabbath. And we're just there and we spend some time in the Bible and we sit down. And as we're there, we sit there and we just start contemplating God's goodness. And you can see just the sun going down, and it was just this, this presence you felt in the air. And as we're there, we said a prayer. But as we said this prayer, all of a sudden we heard. I go, did you just hear that? And he, my friend said, no. Then I said, let's keep praying. So we continue praying. Then we heard. Whoa. 
opened our eyes, there was a bear on the other side of the lake just roaring. I don't know about you, but if you're a guy, that was a Sabbath blessing if there ever was one. That was a Sabbath blessing. Another time, God says, hey, instead of going out this time, after Pollock, I want you to go home. I want you to sit down. I want you to spend some time with me. I was super blessed. Super blessed because God ministered to me. Another time, I said, Lord, I want to do some fellowship. I invited some of the people over, and we went over to the house. We turned on this movie. It was, by, it was about William Carey. I still need to return that to you at home. And he was a missionary who went to the Middle Eastern countries. We watched that for two hours. And we're eating popcorn. And by the very end of it, everyone's heart was so touched because this man had given his life to do missions in a foreign country. Folks, when you begin to realize all the beautiful things about the Sabbath, all of a sudden it's, you don't have to do the common things. You don't have to do the worldly things. You don't have to do those things that are reserved for the rest of the week. But when it comes to these holy, precious hours... In fact, you want to know something very interesting. You know, we quoted from 2 Timothy chapter 3. There are many scholars who believe the root word of the word godly is the root word that's connected to Sabbath keeping. To Sabbath keeping. God wants us to exalt his holy day. Can you say amen to that? God wants us to lift this day up. Because folks, guess what? A couple weeks from now, Two or three weeks from now, we're marching to Houston. We're marching to Houston, and God wants the gospel to go out there. And it's going to be an exciting thing, because guess what? People in that city are going to hear more and more about the same God you believe in. And if you believe in this God and you love this God, guess what? You're going to want others to hear about this God. Can you say amen to that? And you want others to hear about this precious, holy day that he wants you to be a part of. Can you say amen to that? Now what we're going to do real quickly, we're going to look at the life of somebody who actually lived godly and what took place. Take your Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Very remarkable. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 starting with verse 1. Very unusual thing took place in the church. As the church began to grow, there was need for further organization. The church was meant to be organic, but it was burgeoning at the side, so the church, God really inspired the leader, says, you need to organize more. You need to organize more. So watch what happens in Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. There was a group of people in the church who were being neglected by the ministry that was taking place, and so there was this division or dispute that took place. Verse 12, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men full of good reputation, of good reputation full of the what? Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose, what's this next person's name? Stephen, by the way, the word Stephen means crown. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice the very first individual who's chosen to carry out this mission. What was his name? Stephen. His name means crown, as I said before. The Bible talks about him. He was not a pastor. Can you say amen to that? He was a normal person. So first thing I want you to notice about somebody who lived a godly life, who suffered persecution, is that this came from this individual was a normal person. Sometimes we think in the rank of sanctification, we go from faith to diligence to virtue to knowledge to being a pastor. I'm sorry, folks. Past, being a pastor is not the end of the sanctification ladder. Can you say amen to that? Amen? Amen. <laughs> Sometimes it's the very beginning. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Verse 8. Now Stephen, full of faith, and what? Power. The second thing I want you to notice about this individual who lived a godly life was that he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of faith, he was full of power. Why was he full of all these things? Because he was empty of everything else. Can you say amen to that? This was a man who was so dead to self that the Bible could aptly, be, aptly say about him, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, how many people here know somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit? You know why that's so rare? Because there are very many people 
who won't die to self. God wants us to learn to die to self so we can be filled with his Holy Spirit. Can you say amen to that? So number one, Stephen came from the, a common background. There was nothing special about him. We don't know what his profession was. But all we do know is that he wasn't a pastor. Okay? He decided to be used by God. The Bible says he was full of faith. And he was full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see something else about this individual. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. They were actually freed slaves that had actually come together to worship. Cyrenian, Alexandrians, and those from Cilia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he what? Spoke, and that's actually a quote out of Luke chapter 21, verse 15, when Jesus says, I will give you the Holy Spirit, and no one will be able to resist the, by the wisdom and spirit you speak. And Stephen displayed that. You know how you know that? Because what he begins to do next, he begins to give these Pharisees and Sadducees a Bible study. In fact, if you look at this Bible study, you see that he didn't have his Bible with him. He was so full of the Holy Spirit, and he studied the scriptures so well, he quoted about seven or eight scriptures to the, to the, um, to the uh, what do you call these, Sanhedrin. He quoted all this to the Sanhedrin. In fact, what's very interesting is that when Stephen speaks before the Sanhedrin, he actually starts with Abraham, and he goes all the way to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. You know why that's so interesting? Because whenever you read the Old Testament, what you will find is whenever Israel was at the end of a contract they had made with God or a beginning of a contract, that Israel's history would be reviewed. Does anybody know the year that Stephen was speaking before this multitude? A.D. what? 34. You know why A.D. 34 is so important? Because this was the end of the 70-year prophecy. Do you remember 70 years are different for you and your people? There was a 70-year probation, and this was the very last year. And here Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for some reason, begins to give this history lesson and reviewing the covenant that they, the Israel had made with his people. But watch this, something so interesting. Look at the very beginning when he begins this Bible study. Look at verse, chapter 6, verse 15. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of a what? Angel. Okay, so as he comes into here to speak, what do they notice about Stephen's face? That's right. Amen. Amen. Stephen's face looked like a what? An angel. His face was glowing. Now you're thinking to yourself, okay, what's the big deal? He was probably, you know, in the presence of God at that moment. But I want you to notice something else. As Stephen begins to give this entire chapter on uh, Israel's history, watch what happens at the very end of his speech to the Sanhedrin. Take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 6, and I want you to go to verse 48. Here Stephen is coming right down to the very end of his history lesson with Israel, what God was doing was going over the contract and where they had violated the contract and he was ending the probation time. Chapter 6, verse 48. Oh, I'm sorry, my bad. You guys read your Bible, praise the Lord. Okay, verse 48. <laughs> However, the Most High does not dwell in what? Temples made with hands. God does not dwell in temples made with man's hands. Can you say Amen. But he does dwell in temples made with his own hands. And you are the temple of God. Can you say amen to that? Well, let's keep going. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet has said. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Oh, what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? And at the very end, at the very end of this discussion, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon him in a powerful way. He cuts the message in half, and he immediately begins to lay a sharp rebuke to the Sanhedrin. And the reason why is because at that moment, when Stephen said the Holy Spirit does not dwell in this temple anymore, they, were, they closed off their heart. They were so full of pride. And so the Holy Spirit went straight for a rebuke to penetrate through the, the stone wall they had set up. Look what he says next. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and the ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. 
Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now be become the betrayers and murderers. Now watch verse 53. Who have received the law by the direction of what? Angels and have not kept it. Notice this. This is very interesting. He starts off by staring at the Sanhedrin, and as they're looking at him, what do they notice about his face? It was the face of a what? Angel. At the very end of his speech, at the very end of his speech to Israel, he says, God gave you this law, those angels gave it to you, and you have not kept it. Now that's so interesting because he starts off with this almost angelic encounter, and at the very end he ends with how they did not obey the laws that were given by the angels themselves. Now, why is that important for us to understand? Take your Bible, go to Zechariah chapter 3. We don't have much time. Let's keep going. Zechariah chapter 3. But keep your finger on Acts, too. Zechariah chapter 3, page 918. 919, excuse me. Here, Joshua, the high priest, is taken before God. And he is seeing a vision of God, and he's clothed in filthy garments. And Satan is there at the right hand to accuse him. And all of a sudden, the God rebukes Satan. And God tells the angels that are nearby, clothe him with, a, with clean robes. Clothe him with a clean turban. And just give him brand new clothes. And he says, God has washed away your sin. But then he says something very interesting to Joshua. Something very interesting. Take your Bible. Look at verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my, what, command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge over my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who, what, stand here. Let me ask you a question. Who was standing there besides Joshua? Who was there besides Joshua and God? All the angels were there. All the angels were there. In other words, what God was telling Joshua, who was the representative of all of Israel, if you will be faithful to me, I will make you the companion of heaven. Heavenly angels will be by your side. They will be by your side. He said, I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. There were angels that were standing there. And God was telling Joshua, who was the representative of his nation, if you keep my law, you will walk among these beings. Now, why is that so interesting in the book of Acts? Because what Israel effectually did was reject the companionship of heaven. They rejected the companionship of heaven. You know, when you keep God's laws, his angels are drawn to you in a very special way. Can you say amen to that? And the people who may not know you begin to experience it. Who don't know anything about your God, they will experience it. When they see the Sabbath being experienced in your life, all of a sudden there's a certain element of peace that begins to happen in your life. There's something different about you. And especially for you teachers who are out there in the secular world who are wondering, how do I say Jesus loves you without telling them Jesus loves you? When you begin to spend more and, more and more time in the presence of God and you are obedient to his laws, all of a sudden angels are walking with you and people begin to see it or begin to sense it. You know, my brother-in-law, he's a doctor. He's an ER doctor. He's just, you can just, you can just see there's just this constant agitation in his, on his face. You can see he's always busy. He's always checking his cell phone, always running around, going from there to there. Every time there's like a wedding or a birthday, he's there for like 10 minutes and he's like, okay, I got to get going. And he runs off and he's out there and he's taking off. He's doing all these things. You can just see he's just agitated. He has more gray hair than me and he's just a year older than me. But he's just got, I mean, you could just see that there's just these traces of conflict all over his face. You, I mean, here's a man who's just so busy taking care of patients, carrying emotional burdens, and as he's doing all these things, and I go there one day at my sister's wedding, and I'm sitting down next to him, and I was about to leave to go get a drink. He said to me, where are you going? And I said, I'm just going to get somebody a drink real quick. I'll be right back. He said, you know, make sure you sit right next to me. There's just a certain peace about you. And you look at me, I don't really look so peaceful. <laughs> but people begin to notice it. There's something 
peaceful about you, restful. And that's the work of God giving us his holy Sabbath. Can you say amen to angels are around you? And as you help others, all of a sudden their presence is felt by people who don't know this God. And they begin to sense something strange, something just peaceful about you. Something just special about your life. And as you come in more and more contact with people, all of a sudden they see you and all of a sudden they're, they're, just, they're just drawn to you. They're saying, I don't know why I'm talking to you right now. How many times have that happened to you? It's happened to me a lot. The angels will draw people to you as God's law is written more and more in your heart. And as you begin to experience the beauty of God's laws, you begin to experience the beauty of the Sabbath and learn to rest the way God wants you to rest, all of a sudden people are just going to, brother, I don't know who you are, but I want to be baptized. They will feel convicted by your very presence because of what God is doing. And we're coming down to the very end of it. I want you to turn back to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. We learned a few things about we learned a few things about Stephen, the man who lived godly. Number one, he wasn't a pastor. He came from the common walks of life. Number two, he got involved in the ministry. Number three, he was somebody who was full of the Holy Spirit because he was empty of self. Number four, he studied the scriptures. He knew the scriptures so well. He knew the scriptures so well. But I want you to notice something else about this godly man. Go, book, go back to the book of Acts chapter 7. The end of Acts chapter 7. Verse 54. The Sanhedrin replies very angrily. When they heard these things, they were cut to the what? Heart, and they gnashed at them with, gnashed at him with their teeth. That word gnash, by the way, if you look in Psalms 112, the Bible says they will gnash at you when they see you honored. These people were seeing Stephen honored by God, the way he spoke, his very presence, and they begin to get angry and gnash their teeth at him. But watch what happens next. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the what? Glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, what's that next word? standing at the right hand of the Father. And by the way, when you read Daniel chapter 12, you see that the, son, the Prince of Peace stands up at the close of all of Earth's probation. And here at the end of Judaism's probation, God stands up again. Why? Because the judge is saying, the case is now closed. But this is so important. Don't miss this point. As they're about to come, as they're going to throw Stephen down, and they're ready to pick up those rocks to stone him, and you can imagine just there, all of a sudden, it seems like as everything freezes. And he looks into heaven. And the clouds part and he sees Jesus at the right hand of God, as it says in Romans chapter 8, interceding for us. In other words, to know something about godly people is that they know in the darkest part of their lives, God is interceding for them. Amen? Do you know God is interceding for you right now? It may be the darkest time in your life, and you're wondering to yourself, Lord, why am I so confused? But Jesus, where it seems to be that God isn't doing anything, is doing the most amount of work for you right then and there. Can you say amen to that? Stephen knew that he had an intercessor in heaven. That's something to know about this very godly man. Now look at the very end. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stop their ears. And with a loud voice, with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named what? Saul. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this charge, do not charge them with this what? Sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Folks, I want you to know something about godly people. Number one, they come from common walks of life. Number two, they are full of the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen to that? Number three, they know the scriptures. Number four, they know they have intercessor in heaven. And number five, they pray for those who are persecuting them, for their enemies. And guess what? All who will live godly shall suffer persecution. In our day and age, we think of our enemies. We think of those who are against us. We think of all those who are opposed to us. We think about the guy who cuts us off and we want God to rain down brimstone and fire upon him. 
But how many of us pray for those who are opposed to us and pray that God would bless them, that God would bless them? You know, Stephen's prayer of blessing upon his enemies led to the conversion of the greatest Christian missionary there ever lived, Paul the Apostle. Can you say amen to that? Folks, those who live godly lives shall suffer persecution. If you're dealing with persecution, God's doing something right in your life. Amen? Folks, God wants us to live godly lives. Can you say amen to that? He wants us to search out our ways, to examine our ways, and have the courage to say, Lord, I'm wrong. I'm wrong, God. To come to God with humble hearts and say, Lord, I want to follow you. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. And you will see what happens. God will do special things. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we all fall so short, but God, we thank you that your blood covers us. Oh Lord, you desire us, desire us to go to an even higher standard and Lord, as we're searching at your ways and discovering where we have done you wrong, Father, give us courage to admit our errors, to cast off the old ways. Lord, courage to tell our families, our friends, most of all you, Lord, that this isn't right and you want to do what's right. God, so many times I've erred, so many times we've erred, but you have not cast us off. And Jesus, as probation lingers and the angels are holding back the winds of strife, help us to realize, God, time is short. Help us to live the godly lives that you set forth in the scriptures for us. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.